Hey guys, you're listening to the Blockchain Socialist Podcast, and for this episode, I interviewed Paula Berman, who's a researcher at the Democracy Earth Foundation, where they're working on decentralized blockchain solutions for borderless governance on top of Ethereum, things like identity and quadratic voting, which we'll go into detail later. But before I get into that, I just wanted to announce that we're planning a Blockchain 101 for Socialists live event on the Crypto Leftist Discord on May 2nd. So in this event, I'll try to explain a lot of the blockchain fundamentals and go into a little bit of the technical details, as well as present the case for why and how blockchain can be leveraged by the left. So if you're interested in taking part and asking your own questions during it, then make sure you join the Discord group and mark your calendars. So to get updates on it, make sure to sign up as well for the Blockchain Socialist newsletters, which I'll leave a link in the podcast description as well. I've also created an Eventbrite in case you want an automatic event created for whatever calendar application that you use. But yeah, I just wanted to say that and uh, let's get to it. Hi guys, I'm here with Paula Berman, a researcher based in Brazil working with Democracy Earth and Radical Exchange. Um, Democracy Earth is a foundation that uh, does a lot of very cool things in blockchain, uh, based usually in Ethereum, and does a lot of work regarding identity, and does a lot of experimental stuff thinking about UBI and a couple of other cool things. So, hi Paula, how are you doing? Thank you for having me. I'm good, thanks. Holding on in the middle of this quarantine. Um, but all good. Cool. Yeah, I hope uh, I hope you're staying safe. I am been at home for a long time. Same here. But so, uh, Democracy Earth, the Democracy Earth Foundation, uh, as far as I understand, has existed for a little bit of time, and so it has a bit of a story behind it. And I was wondering if you can maybe explain where Democracy Earth comes from, and then maybe uh, what you guys are working on now. Sure. So the story of the foundation traces its roots back to a political party. So the two co-founders, Santiago and Pia, were there from Argentina. And with their friends over there, they decided to create a political party called Partido de la Red, or the Net Party, which basically had this um, commitment where every candidate was going to vote in Congress according to how citizens voted online in this platform that they also created, which was called Democracy OS. So basically, as a citizen, you could go there, see the laws that were being voted in Congress, and then you could vote in favor or against, and the uh, the candidate, uh, if a candidate was elected, uh, it was going to vote according to how citizens voted online. So it was this initiative to try to address this crisis of representation, which was at the time 
very much felt because this was uh, when we had the Arab Spring and the Occupy Wall Street movement, which were all uh, social media organized movements. And this was an attempt to, to provide a, a, not a social media way, but just to leverage technology in favor of making democracy more robust. So they were not elected, but they, they did make you know, a, a great number of votes. It was, they, they made a lot of noise in, in Buenos Aires. The Congress agreed uh, to use their platform in order to vote on a few pieces of legislation. And they continued developing the, the software as an open source project. It was used by many different groups around the world. If I'm not mistaken, it was used to discuss the new constitution of Tunisia. It was used a lot in France, uh, in Brazil, where I'm from. It was used a lot. That's how I found out as well. Uh, it was used in Sao Paulo. So it was a great open source project. And uh, it caught the eye of Y Combinator, which is uh, an accelerator from Silicon Valley that invited them to go over there and start thinking and get, you know, a startup training and start thinking about it um, in a way uh, with a with a with a very technological perspective and not so much uh, thinking about the software as an interface for between citizen and government, but just govern pure governance software that uses the best uh, technology available to produce the strongest possible democracy. So there was this pivot and in that pivot, um, and I'm trying to summarize here, there were many stories also with corruption. They were asked for a bribe, which was uh, an experience with a direct experience with corruption that also marked a bit this, this uh, turn. With all of that, there was this decision to to look into blockchain technology and see how this could be leveraged to create a censorship resistant democracy and just think about uh, the technology in a more pure way and not strictly uh, confined by what is possible in the institutional realm. So this was five years ago. And since then, we've been doing a lot of research, a lot of writing, a lot of imagining uh, what a what a democracy that uh, leverages blockchain technology would look like, um, and also working on identity, which is a key part that we can discuss uh, further. But this this would be, I guess, a, a summary. Okay. So then, uh, what exactly are the the goals of Democracy Earth? Since it sounds like it got a little bit of startup training from Y Combinator, but it isn't exactly a startup. Yeah, we are, we are a nonprofit and our goal is, you know, it's a very uh, radical and, and revolutionary one in the sense that we're trying to create a movement or and enable um, alternative forms of government uh, and of governance, alternative to the institutions that we have. There are many different opinions within, you know, among the people that have worked on this project regarding, you know, should we still have institutions or should we not have them? I am personally someone who sees 
this as a way to strengthen the institutions that we do have, you know, by creating alternatives, we, we maybe can force them to be better at their game. Um, but our goal is also a very, very high one. And I think with time, we discovered that the challenge was, is an enormous one. It, it always was, but the more we dig, we digged into the problem, the more we we discovered how complex it was. And I, I think nowadays we see ourselves as uh, just trying to coordinate different efforts in the space, trying to foster conversations in a direction that we, we think is productive for the blockchain ecosystem and specifically the organizations that are concerned with governance. And in software wise, we're also trying to create software that helps bring different projects together and just accelerate the pace of innovation in the space uh, of blockchain based governance and identity. In the reading that I did, um, what I found a lot was that Democracy Earth was really interested in what they called borderless governance, um, which I think is, is really interesting um, in terms of promoting democracy within different types of organizations, so not necessarily restricting ourselves to uh, a type of political uh, democracy, but also, I think, thinking about, uh, you know, maybe it's an economic type of democracy as well, which is interesting, and something that is sort of talked about in the blockchain world, but is not, I think, completely solved or completely embraced by everyone who's, who's in it. Um, and one of the reasons that is, is possibly because of the identity problem that blockchain has at the moment where it's, uh, it's difficult to know if someone is, is a human or maybe a, a bot. So I was curious if you can talk about the, what you guys call the intersubjective consensus and some of the identity solutions you guys are working on. Sure. So just to uh, clarify a bit what is this identity problem uh, basically in order to have online governance you need to be able to ensure um, first that any any kind any participant of this vote is a legitimate member of whatever the domain is um, and second that it's not a a replicant so that that there that it's a, actually a real human being behind it and not just a fake internet identity and this is a pretty big problem because if you don't have a way to signal a robust unique identity then the only alternative that you have in order to do a, a blockchain based vote is to do a coin vote and this is what uh, most of the projects have been opting for when they have governance needs. You know, some of them, I think that this also, on the other hand, has diminished the, the use of blockchain as a infrastructure for governance. But when there's no way around it, when you need to decide a change in the protocol of, you know, whatever uh, project you, you have or you need when there's an uncircumventable need, you need you then you you the only alternative that you have today is to do a coin vote. 
and then whoever has more coins uh, can alter the results in their favor. So most of blockchain governance today is plutocratic. And until we have a way to signal identities without also while preserving privacy, because of course you can, and there are some, some blockchain identity projects. If you Google blockchain and identity, you will find many options today, but they are piggybacking the the legitimacy of their identity on traditional solutions like you know nation state identity or any organization that you have participated in which can vouch for you um but the real challenge that we are concerned with as an organization and more and more people in the blockchain ecosystem are as well is to find a way to come up with a decentralized consensus for identity where you don't have a single point of failure or a single institution, a single authority that can leak all of the data and control all of the data and use it for bad purposes. And there are many uh, different minor challenges uh, also involved in this. How do you store this data? How do you keep it? How do you keep it through time? Um, and there are many projects that are looking into how how to enable that because once you do then there's this world of possibilities that you can enact with governance with uh ubi etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah I, I there's definitely a, a world of possibilities i think with this type of uh with blockchain in general of course and then but on top of that having some like the identity problem having some sort of solution behind it um so i was curious why why you think, you know, why someone on the left who may associate blockchain with Bitcoin and sort of right-wing libertarianism, why would they care about this identity problem being solved? This is a great question. So I think one of the narratives that is very dominant in, in the blockchain ecosystem, and I think Balaji Srinivasan was one of the people who has put this a lot out there, is the idea of voice and exit. Um, and basically, it means that in, a, in, a, in order for citizens to, to have a valid participation in a democracy, they must be able to have a voice meaning to collectively organize around a cause and you know make their voice heard and the ability to exit the system and originally this idea uh there's this book called i think it's voice and exit where the author when he posed this idea he states that both in order to have effective voice you need to have effective exit so the, the, the possibility of leaving enhances uh, how hurt you, you are. And in order to, to have effective exit, you also need effective voice. So it, those two things are dependent on each other. And what we have right now is exit. And a lot of people in the blockchain ecosystem were extremely excited, for example, when in Venezuela you had hyperinflation and then many Venezuelans were able to flee the country by buying Bitcoin 
and then they just turned their assets into this thing that they could carry in their head. No one could confiscate it at the airport, and they, they were just able to leave and kind of escape this authoritarian regime. This was exit, and it's a very libertarian concept at the end of the day because it's concerned with the individual. But and, and I can say this from experience because I've been in touch with many people from Venezuela who were involved in the blockchain ecosystem and who wanted to turn this as uh, something that could empower their nation. But the issue is that we don't have a mechanism for voice, meaning for collective bargaining. There's no way for Venezuelans today to just go and organize on the blockchain and signal their, their needs. And this is, and an, it's an incomplete solution. If you can't organize with your peers, then, okay, you can leave your country, but your nation is behind you all, all your life. So it's not, it's not just desirable to have only voice, you only exit, you need voice as, voice as well. And I think when it comes to, to voice, this is an inherently uh, left, Maybe, you know, maybe I'm overstretching here, but I think it's something that the left is concerned with participation, political participation and representation and the ability to have a democracy where everyone is heard and not just the few ones who have more, more uh, capital. And this is something that is not possible today, but if it is, it's something that I think the left should be interested in enabling because once we do have that, then there's several things uh, that pertain to left concerns, such as, you know, just having a voice participation, uh, which would be possible to do using blockchain networks. Would solving the, the identity problem, I guess, in a way it empowers sort of normal people to give a voice rather than right now, I think by and large, you show your voice through capital. It, exactly. Sort of at the moment, it's a, a bit of the libertarian uh, sort of dream, although it's a nightmare for others that you can sort of, you, you communicate through capital in, in a way, yeah. you know, by through manipulation of markets and through, um, you know, mass movement of, of capital in, in one direction or another. And yeah, so by... Uh, because we're, you know, this is a pre-French revolution time for the blockchain ecosystem because who only people who have assets are able to have a voice. And then that's inherently an anti-democratic, uh, system and we need to recognize that uh, that first it's you know, we're at the very early days so there's also I think it's important to recognize that not all is set in stone and there's much in, in the state of affairs today is not indicative of what is it going to be uh, forever into the future um, there's a lot of work to be done but also that the way that things are right now is pretty, um, what's the word for it? It's pretty archaic. You know, we, we just don't have the franchise in within the blockchain world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I, I can agree with that. Um, but I think maybe one sort of 
so one sort of thought that I've had in, in relation to identity um, that I've thought about actually is that like one, yes, it does. It would make governance more possible, I would say. I think governance is possible, but it makes this much more possible and you can be much more um, creative with what you do with, with your governance uh, on a blockchain. But I guess it can be, governance can be used to, to help or to hurt depending on who who sort of builds these systems. So I was wondering if you had any thoughts on like how, how do we as, I mean, not only just as left, but as just normal people who aren't billionaires, how do we make sure that we, like what are type of things we should look for uh, in a governance system or like in an identity system that makes sure that we are we have we have our own rights protected that's a great question uh there are several properties that you that you want in a in a decentralized identity system first it, it should be decentralized and you know that's what what we're aiming for this is i'm, I'm talking about an ideal that you know lots of people have been uh it's almost this you know search for uh something you know it's almost this alchemy search because it's an idea that a lot of people have been pursuing for many years some many people have simply given up and said that this is not possible uh, meaning to do a, a truly decentralized uh, identity system because you will always have a way to hack it and to create fake identities but the promises are so great if you if you are able to do this then what you can do the the uh, the increase for human potential is so extraordinary that it's a lot of people are pursuing this consider it worthwhile even though it's a challenge so some of the properties that such an identity system should have it should be decentralized that's the first thing nobody should have uh, the ability to find all of the data in one single honeypot you need to uh, be able to ensure that all of the members of it are able to keep their privacy and keep their data and disclose it at their own will. Now, different identity protocols that are being tested today uh, are more relaxed or more uh, strict on, on how private they are. Uh, the most private, I'd say, is this one called the IDENA network, where you do not need to share any kind of information all that you need to do is prove that you are a human being by doing a kind of captcha test where you, you that only only a human can, can do. It's a test designed solely for humans. No machine learning system can solve this test. And uh, all of the members of the network have to do it at the same time so that you know that there are no duplicates. And then on the other hand, this, this would be more the CAPTCHA style uh, identity protocol. And then on the other hand, there are uh, social network based identity protocols where you, you have this kind of social validation. And then obviously you are exposing yourself a little more to a certain degree. But ideally what you want is something that is privacy pre preserving. And then you want something where your data is locally stored on your device where there's no centralized server. 
uh, holding it and then uh, you also want to have the ability to know how your data is being used if it is used and to selectively disclose uh, this this uh, these pieces of data about yourself and um, you want you want to have the ability to also have multiple uh, to have pseudonymity so to have multiple identities if you want you don't want to use the same key for every single platform that you access so that's you know these are many I, I didn't exhaust the list, uh, yeah. but these are many difficult things to achieve in one single system. Still, there are, uh, it's very encouraging to see right now, a year over, a little over a year ago, the space was pretty much empty. And right now we have several organizations around the world uh, who are working on this project. Some of them are have software that is already uh, working like the IDENA network, which I mentioned. Right ID is also super interesting. We are working on something with Democracy, which is the intersubjective consensus that you mentioned before. Um, there's the UPALA also, uh, which is a cool project trying to do, uh, a, trying to estimate a price for, for an identity, which is another interesting, super crazy and great approach. But anyways, um, I'm digressing here. The point is that there's there have been significant advances in this direction and, and the reason for that is uh, that the ecosystem as a whole is realizing that you really can't move forward in terms of governance without solving this first so yeah that's all really interesting um, it's sort of when when or if this type of problem is able to be solved you can start creating alternatives to sort of what exists currently and you can you can participate essentially in two different systems sort of in a, a dual power type of situation um, exactly. but so I was also wondering if there were plans actually to use or to involve if democracy earth is involved in traditional politics because I can imagine I would imagine someone in traditional politics may also be interested Yes, uh, we are. I mean, this is this is the connected to the story of our organization. We started as a political party, um, and then nowadays we are uh, extremely interested in helping governments uh, become more innovative. One of one of the things that we did last year was a pilot with uh, the Colorado democratic caucus and we and in partnership with the radical exchange foundation we did a we helped them we helped implement a quadratic vote for them and this was super interesting um i'll just try to explain quadratic voting very briefly i, w I was going to ask you that after this actually <laughs> yeah so quadratic voting is a system of credits where basically so just to, to first uh, talk about the goals, the idea is that you want a system where people are able to very precisely express their preferences, where, whereas with a simple one person, one vote system, uh, it's very difficult for you to uh, express the nuance of your, of your choices. 
So quadratic vote is something that is designed to allow each voter to express their, their choices in a very nuanced way. And the way that it does that is by giving each voter a set of credits. So let's say each, each of them has 100 credits. And then you can express the intensity of your, you have a set of choices. It could be candidates, it could be different policies. In, in the case of Colorado, it was uh, different views. And then you're able to express the intensity of your preference for each of the choices by putting more tokens, more of those credits onto them. But the trick is that for each uh, additional vote that you cast, there's an exponential cost. So one vote is going to cost one credit, two votes is going to cost four credits, three is going to cost nine, et cetera, et cetera. And therefore, uh, if you want to really cast a lot of votes on the same on one single option, then you pay a very high price. Whereas if you uh, divide your votes among more options, then you're able to just choose more things and, and have more votes in your in your wallet. So the idea is to make uh, zealotry expensive and we, we have implemented that for the for the Colorado Democratic Caucus. We are we are also pursuing it with other governments, and the idea is to help, of course, if if we can. Our main focus is on identity, but mm -hmm. we have a software that is ready for that, and we are also very much interested in helping uh, institutions adopt more innovative approaches in in their own governance. So at the end of the day, what this voting method does is that it um, shows whether the strong preferences of the minorities are uh, stronger than the, the weak preferences of the of the majority. So it, it paints a very accurate picture. And what uh, research has shown is that this leads constituencies to become less polarized, which is a great thing, while it also helps minorities to, to organize around their own causes. So it helps, it helps groups find, find consensus and determine what is really priority for them. And I think in, in a scenario where we often have um, special interests who are who have a, dispro a disproportional impact on a few issues the ability for constituencies to organize and voice their preference and fully voice uh what they're doing what they want through democratic means is very interesting oh yeah i think um Having uh, a system that can more accurately display what the the thoughts are of the of the group would be beneficial. Uh, I mean, for enhancing democracy and just making it making it more robust and getting yeah, people to be the, able to participate. Yes, exactly. And w one of the ways that I think about it is just in terms of the amount of information that you're putting out there and. Um, Santi, who I work with, is he he makes this joke that we are only in terms of the amount of information. What we can do today with our politics is to send to send an emoji every two years, 
and just it's a yes or no and you're usually selecting from a, a very small pool of candidates that are also is filtered through all of these processes that are not uh, democratic per se so what what quadratic voting allows you to do because you have to say oh i I am in favor of this, but I really care about this issue and this other one. I'm also signaling support, but not as much like it, it allows you to paint this picture of your preference. Then it's as if you're constructing a sentence or a paragraph as opposed to a, an emoji. So it's a, a very rich, uh, informationally rich way to to vote. I can see how that is. Um, I can imagine that, you know, in a situation like we're having right now, at least in the U.S., where, I mean, it looks like Joe Biden will be the Democratic nominee, uh, unfortunately, to go up against Trump. And so now you have the situation where people are saying, oh, if you don't vote, if you don't vote for Biden, then you're voting for Trump. But, you know, maybe you have serious disagreements. You don't really want to, to vote for either of them. You don't really have I mean, in a way, you don't have that much of a choice to 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 make a difference and to signal that you're very unhappy with your choices. Because I think, you know, it, it just happens a lot in in America and in some other countries where you're stuck with two bad choices and there's nothing you can really do to 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 show any any type of nuance. Yeah, it's a very binary option, right? Yeah. But so uh, one of the things that I also wanted to talk about, and I know we talked about this earlier, and this is something that a question you get probably all the time, but, you know, something we have to consider is that, you know, if you're on a, a blockchain, then there is money involved. And, you know, sometimes a lot of these projects they use, you know, their votes are their tokens that you can just buy on the market. So if you're very rich, then you can buy a lot of uh, votes. Um, how does what is democracy Earth's thought on you know, the, the prevention of you know the, the influence of capital over the democratic process? Well, it's certainly not a good one. I think that there are some some places where that could make sense. For example, for a, a private organization, for a company um, to have a a shareholder vote where whoever has more shares uh, has a bigger say on the outcome that might make sense that might even lead to better decisions but when it comes to uh, deciding over public goods making public decisions then you definitely want to have a, a democratic system where each person has the an equivalent uh, weight on on the decision in question so what i and this is it's true. It's a, a lot of people. When we first started writing about this in 2017, we wrote this white paper called the social smart contract. And the idea was to imagine what would a new social contract look like um, in the age of cryptography, in the age of smart contracts, in the age of blockchains. And when we first started discussing uh, blockchain-based votes, this was the first question that we would get, how can you have a vote uh, that has a, a value to it? And I think that first it's important to say that every vote has a cost. We're just not 
paying it upfront, but we are paying for the infrastructure with our taxes. In the same way, also that every not not uh, there's no perfect identity system out there. You know, every we have SIBO attacks. Let's say SIBO attacks is the term for for an attack in a distributed system. But we also have uh, duplicates or replicates or fake identities in traditional identity systems. So this these are two important things to keep in mind. And then by putting and then. So why would we put a price on a vote? Why we would have a blockchain-based token with a with a with a value to be used as a vote? I think the first uh, point that you want to address is that if you're doing such a thing, you want to ensure that you have a distribution among all the participants that is equivalent or equal. So that everyone has the ability to have a similar weight uh, on this question. When we were uh, writing the social smart contract, our idea was to have a universal basic income of votes. So everyone just is receiving this through time uh, in an equal way. And then, or with with uh, quadratic voting also, it only works if all of the, of the participants have the same amount of credit. So that's, a prerequisite. And then on the other hand, uh, what you want is to is for these votes to have an impact. And right now what we have in the internet is that we're always signaling our preferences. We are upvoting things on Reddit or we are retweeting something. We are liking things on Twitter. We are giving hearts on Instagram. And all of these things are uh, expressions of preferences, but they don't have any institutional value. And especially earlier, when I first started working with this, you know, in the civic tech world, where we were thinking about software for people to vote online, not using blockchain technology, I pretty quickly was able to realize that there were a lot of fallacies in the space. And uh, this was kind of an, an early promise that, oh, if you just create a website where people can vote, then they're going to be able to exert pressure in government and change and, and achieve, you know, change in legislation. And this was disproved. A, a lot of these experiments were tried and tested, and it's very, very difficult to actually achieve the, you know, a critical mass in order to, of, of people, you know, putting pressure in order to actually achieve change. And, there are a few anecdotal stories of like, oh, this change.org thing that everybody signed and it worked, but it, but these are actually harmful because they create this false theory of change that if people just organize online, they're going yeah. to change government, and it 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 does not happen like that. There there were millions of dollars invested by many different foundations on. Uh, legislative uh, monitoring projects where citizens, you know, could go online and see the laws and vote, but these had no institutional impact. And right now, this is pretty recognized uh, in the in the civic tech space. So the value of having, and I, I can even say, you know, share my own experience working with my my government here from my city in Brazil, Curitiba, 
when we, we were trying to do a participatory budgeting project and it was extremely difficult. We had the buy-in of the mayor, but then tons of people were, uh, you know, creating problems and were against it. And then at the end of the day, and we were an open source, we were working with open source project. We just wanted to enable it to give it for free to, to the municipality. And it's very, very hard for them to even even in a case where we had the support of the mayor and he was really excited about it, it was very hard to actually turn it into reality. Governments are not designed to to, you know, power is not something that people will just give away. Mm-hmm. So by cre- this is you know a long answer, but what I'm trying to say is that by using blockchain technology, what we have is the ability to actually enforce the decisions. So we create a group, we, we vote with things. Maybe the vote can pass a, a financial threshold and it can work and a vote can, it can be a hybrid between a vote and a crowdfunding uh, project, right? Like you're voting for it, you're staking uh, some value onto it. Or you can just show that there's an X amount of economic value behind uh, uh, a certain idea. You can even, you know, we, we used to joke that you can hodl, which is this expression that I don't know if many people are familiar with, but just hold your, your bitcoins. You can hodl on, on a political cause. Like you can just stake your, your bitcoins or your cryptocurrency behind a certain idea that you think is important. And I think that kind of signal is much more powerful than a simple like. Um, and it enables you to do uh, a lot more things. by doing by, So by attributing value to it, we're by no means saying that uh, whoever has more money should be making decisions. We're, we're actually, what we want is for all of us to be able to accurately and signal things and enforce them uh, through the power of economic value. So quadratic voting is um, it's pretty interesting way of looking at how to more accurately display uh, preferences. But based on a little bit of my research, it's sort of based on the assumption of this concept called the tyranny of the majority. So this is, in case people don't know, this is sort of like if you're, you know, in 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 a group, um, those who have the class of people who have the sort of the majority of the population, they have the ability to um, hurt the some other minority of the population. This usually is uh, an example of like ethnic minorities or something like that. Um, it's a uh, a type of concept that I personally find a little bit strange as um, something to necessarily be worried about in the realm of democracies in the sense that if you have the ability to take away the rights of someone else, then it seems like this is not very democratic in the first place and this isn't really much of a democracy. So I was curious what you know what what were the thoughts on 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 that and you know how does that relate to to quadratic voting um yeah it's a it's an interesting kind of conundrum because when you think about democracy you think about um 
you know, the, the rule of the majority. Um, whereas at the same time, uh, we also find that there's something authoritarian about it because you don't want if you when you when you have the tyranny of the majority what you're doing is you're eliminating diversity you're eliminating you know a, a plurality of ideas um, to be able to emerge and to have an impact in in a group in a society so i think what what we have nowadays is that because minorities cannot express themselves through democratic means, because majority always wins, uh, this is how a democracy works. So you can have, you know, it's very difficult for you to get representation for minority causes. And usually the solution that you have for this in our, democrat in our democracies is to achieve those uh, rights and laws for, for minorities through the uh, through the judicial power. So judges are going to rule in favor of, of these minorities and then create those rights. But this is also far from being an ideal way of creating those regulations because you don't you don't there's no public oversight. Uh, over this in the same way that a democratic process would create. So what what quadratic vote does is that it, it allows minorities to also express their voice. And I think that it's not necessary. It's not an anti-democratic thing. What you allow with this is that you don't converge to the middle in every single one of your uh, decisions. And that might be a desirable property to have in a governance system because quadratic voting is allowing people to accurately express their preferences. So right now we often converge to the middle or even to more radical positions because people are not able to fully express the nuance of what they desire. But with just by allowing this uh, detail of, of capture, then as a result, you have a more, more plurality of ideas and more variety. So we, at the end of the day, it's a stronger democracy. It's one where you have more voices participating and not just one where you have this authoritarian convergence to the middle. I, I, I wouldn't say that it's an anti-democratic thing, on, on the very opposite. I was wondering if you could explain what exactly is the Moloch Dao? Sure. Thank you for asking. It's a really cool project. So just to give a little bit of background, uh, a DAO is a decentralized autonomous organization. That's what the acronym stands for. And it's basically a type of smart contract. So a group of people, uh, let's say a group of people pulls funds and they have this common interest in the case of the Moloch DAO the interest is, uh, the goal is to um, promote the development of ETH 2.0, the next uh, protocol of the Ethereum blockchain. And there's this group of, of organizations or individuals who are interested in that, or let's say could have any, any other kind of goal. So they pull funds and then they vote on how those funds can be allocated and anyone can create proposals um, to get to, to be funded by 
pull. But the the cool thing about the DAO is that the voting and the governance rules and the, the allocation of the funds is all the ensuing ensuing allocation of the funds based on how the members vote is all coordinated by a smart contract. So there's no authority, there's no entity, there's no uh, centralized organization that is that is behind this. It's all done by a contract that is incorrupt, incorruptible. You can trust it. And one of the main experiments, one of the main DAO experiments happened in 2016. It was called DDAO and it was uh, hacked and that kind of traumatized the ecosystem, I think, for a few years. So we didn't see many uh, governance innovations, uh, especially on the Ethereum blockchain. But, uh, you know, there, there are a few interesting organizations out there, but there wasn't a lot of organic growth. And then that started to happen with the Moloch DAO, which was a project created by Amin Soleimani in uh, early 2019, I think it was in a hackathon, and so very spontaneous. And the main innovation that it brought to the DAO ecosystem and the reason why it caught on was that it had this rule called the Rage Quit, which enabled, uh, very funny, so it, it enabled all members to Rage Quit. If, if you voted no on a proposal, if it's, it's uh, it's an ongoing down. So if you if you are a member of Molotov and if you vote no on a proposal and this proposal is approved by the other members, so if it passes, there's a grace period. And then during this grace period, you can quit the DAO. So you, you are free to leave it and you take all the remaining shares. You, you convert your share, shares into uh, the money that you initially put in minus whatever has been allocated to the projects uh, while you were a part of it. And then um, and then you you leave the DAO. So you're not locked into it, which was an issue with the original DAO, the DAO. So that gives that gives an extra assurance for for the members and it incentivized people to create more DAOs. So became a bit of a standard in the Ethereum ecosystem. And uh, we are we have created an interface for the Moloch DAO uh, with Democracy Earth. And there are many other projects that have also used the same code. It's also 400 lines of code only. So it enables people to easily work with it. It also reduces the space for um, hacks or bugs or zero day vulnerabilities. Um, so it's it's an interesting model that has been emerging and it has, it's been gaining traction. There, there are several DAOs out there that they use the same model and RageQuit has also become a standard in the place, in, in the space. I think Aragon has adopted it as well, which is another big uh, DAO organization. So that's that's Molotov. And what they are doing specifically is funding uh, ETH 2.0 development. But what I think that just the model itself became very became a new standard in, in the space. And uh, I'm a I'm a big fan of uh, of Amin and what what their team did, because they 
enable the ecosystem to mature. For a few years, we didn't have much happening. In 2019, mm. a few people called it the year of the DAO uh, because a lot of different projects started to to leverage this standard and also to create other standards. I, so then you guys helped out with, um, so Amin made it uh, in a hackathon and then you helped with the, the front end, the user uh, interface. Did I get that right? Yeah, we, no, the, the, the Maltown has its own original user interface, which is uh, not super, but it works. Um, and what we try to do is to just create a nicer user interface and the next step is to enable anyone to just uh, go go on our website and fill out a form with the different properties of the DAO that they want to create and immediately create a Moloch DAO with the same interface for themselves. I see. I see. So like a, a modular, like using exactly. a Moloch DAO as a template DAO for uh, yes. if you want to make if you may want to make your own. Yes, and okay. and the idea for that is that DAOs are uh, they are a kind of contract that requires human input. If you're if there are governance contracts, so people are voting, they have funds, so it's not you're not likely to see uh, bots a DAO filled with bots deciding things. It, it implies some kind of cognitive process there. So there's, mm. it's likely that there's a human behind uh, each address. So that's, so that's why we, we have been doing this because what we think is that it will be very good for the ecosystem of DAOs to grow. We want to support it. And by doing so, we'll have more human metrics that mm. we can use for a probabilistic identity ecosystem. So uh, my last question, if people want to get involved with Democracy Earth or if they want to, to learn more about your organization and what you guys do, what should they do? So everyone is more than welcome to collaborate with us. Everything that we do is open source, uh, coding wise, but also in thinking wise, uh, all of our papers are written on GitHub. So you can just go to GitHub, uh, dot com slash democracy earth and you'll find our different uh projects there we're also on twitter.com slash democracy earth and uh you can always reach out to us to, especially if you are willing to organize uh and create a DAO, which is something that we are very much interested in fostering we'll be putting out a very simple software where you, without uh, much coding knowledge, you just be able to create a, a DAO uh, for yourself with a great interface. You can check that out on Moloch, M-O-L-O-C-H dot democracy dot earth. Uh, and you can see that, uh, how, how would a DAO look like? And what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks is to enable this software to just replicate uh, that model, but under with whatever uh, configurations you want for your own DAO. So this is also another key way, and you should be looking out to our social media to stay tuned for, for news on that front. And our blog, finally, on words.democracy.earth, and we're always publishing what we're up to over there. All right, that sounds uh, that sounds awesome. 
Well, thanks so much for uh, for coming on and taking the time to to share Democracy Earth with us.